Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. Hey everybody, welcome to the island. We're here with the Indie World Order Con and we're gonna be going through how to find the best strategies, not how to find, we know how to find them, but what are the best strategies for finding and vetting good partners for your company? Wanna start off and just say a hearty congratulations and, and good job to the entire team behind this project. No one asked them to do this. They're not getting paid big bucks to do this or anything along those lines. They simply put together a excellent little convention that you can download straight from Steam and check out all sorts of fun stuff from uh, indie developers all around the world. So with that, want to jump on in and get started here on, like I said, you know, how we're going to find the best partners for our company. So you know, this goes beyond just the normal how to find a publisher talk that we do, because this applies to all sorts of stuff, especially for indie teams, whether you need a music company or an art company or a narrative designer or what have you, you know, this still applies to the publisher side of it and everything, but there's a lot that goes into this outside of that as well. So while I'm getting final geared up on this side, if you've got any questions that you want to ask, feel free at any point during the talk to fire it out there, put it in chat wherever you are, and we'll get it going. So with that, making a quick Discord announcement here. There we go. All right. So yeah, let's dive into this then. So partnership overview, you know, there's a couple of questions you got to ask yourself first before we dive or before you start this entire process anyway. One is, do you really need a partner? Um, it just depends on what you want to do. And so we're going to get into all this is just an overview, but, you know, then we're going to go into finding a partner how to qualify that partner, structuring agreements, and then, you know, tips for managing the relationship all the way through. So first and foremost, do you need one? That comes down to, you know, the goals that you've got for your project. And so if we look at the typical indie game development, there are, you know, a couple of points that are the major pillars of, of the project. You know, you've got to get funded. You've got to have somebody to design this stuff. You've got the core development involved in it. 
you can't leave out the marketing because marketing and community building need to be done simultaneously while you're doing the development. Then you've got to worry about distribution and you know anything else. Looking at all of these pillars, it's important that you understand your budget and your limits, you know, full blown having everything budget, you know, unlimited money solves a lot of problems, but none of us really have unlimited money to go in and do that. Um, and understand too, you know, what you're good at, what you want to do, all of that kind of good stuff, because that's a, you know, very important part of the process as well. Twitch isn't agreeing with me this morning. Bear with me one second. We're supposed to be on the IWO channel. There we go. Now we're good to go. Okay. So understanding all of that, how do you go back and find a partner? So one, now you at least know what you need. So, you know, you've got the design taken care of, but you need money or you've got the money taken care of in the design and you need somebody to do the marketing. You know, how do we go ahead and start looking for these partners? So first, very simple, you're, you're going to start by building a list of the potential partners. And, you know, this can be done through a CRM solution. This can be done through an Excel sheet. This can be done through Trello or whatever it may be that you use but you're going to have to build that initial list of partners. Now, um, that's a little easier these days, given the pandemic and everybody's going digital and working from home. You know, you don't necessarily need to go to, well, you can't really go to trade shows right now. That's part of the problem. But you, those are typically a good place to find these partners, but we don't have that option right now. When that option comes back, we can look at trade show attendees. But in the meantime, you want to start with, you know, specific sites full of, you know, all of these types of partners that you can find, you know, Gama Sutra has them. We are working on one ourselves called gamesentinel.com. You can go ahead and sign, actually it's game.sentinel, but anyway, yeah, no, gamesentinel.com. See, I ain't had enough coffee yet this morning. Gamesentinel.online, that's where you can go. Um, Google searches, LinkedIn, a news feed. I mean, that's one of the things that we do on even on our Discord server is there's constant news feed coming in that will give you a good indication of who's out there and who can help you with these, these particular projects. So the trade show attendees comes back in when, you know, they always have these wonderful books of all the all the exhibitors and, and that sort of stuff. And you can still get that from you know, your online resources too. Um, whenever we do our indie game business conferences, there's always that section where you can go and actually literally sort the partners by what they do. Are they art contractors? Do they do music and audio? You know, what do they do? These events are happening multiple times a month. We do our events, you know, every three or four months, but there's a ton of these things out there. You have a wealth of resources. You may have to spend a little bit of money but it's not truthfully that expensive. It's never expensive as going and flying to a trade show these days. Um, but you want to make sure that you've got that initial starting list somewhere and you're going to need to research everybody on that list. So this is where, you know, having an Excel spread 
or you know coming in and putting it in your CRM is going to help because there's different things that you need to track. And a spreadsheet is always the first place because you can then upload it to your CRM. But um, you know who they are, obviously, what the website, do they have any PowerPoint decks? Especially a lot of um, contractors will have a deck outlining what they've done, what their pricing is, that sort of stuff. So you want to make sure you're cataloging that. Um, and then, you know, cold calls, emails, that sort of stuff. Discord is another wonderful way place to find people now. So, you know, use all of these things. You need to be searching, you know, what they're doing. Let me flip the next slide here. I'll tell you. So this is the stuff that you need to be looking for and putting in that spreadsheet. So how long they've been around, number of games that they've worked on, what type of games have they worked on? If it's a art contractor, are they, you know, more focused on Unity or focused on Unreal or do they have a preference either way? You know, it just comes down to the individual partners. So you want to be able to track that aspect of it. Um, pricing, typically pricing is done in the frame of, of per person per month. Um, but you want to make sure you've got that. Grading scale is good. And, you know, this is a lot of, this is the way that we do a lot of evaluation on games themselves is, you know, putting in a score for audio, putting in a score for, uh, you know, gameplay, creativity, price point, that sort of stuff. It will help you because having that empirical data in there um, is going to be very, very important. Um, and then, you know, prioritize all of this based on, you know, what you need to see, what is important to you, because there's not like a, a given, you know, standard everybody has. It really is going to come down to your own decision. So, when you've got the list put together, you want to narrow it down. And so this is where a lot of it comes in. And that scoring system will be able to help you. So look at your research data, you know, what you came back with in terms of their experience in the industry, the types of games that they worked on, you know, the quality of the work that you've seen from their projects. Uh, look at their track record. You know, is it something that they've done projects for many, many years? Are they fairly new to the industry? Again, it's very, very important to look at the types of projects they've been involved in. One, because a contractor that is used to dealing with somebody like an EA for FIFA or Activision for Call of Duty is going to be set up differently than a contractor who is used to dealing with indie teams and, and things like that. So if you're an indie team, it's not always the best scenario to go out and find the teams that have been working on gigantic AAA titles. It's certainly, you know, a, it's not a bad thing, but it is different. That's, that's the thing to keep in mind. And typically, too, those companies are going to be a little more expensive because they are used to dealing with EA budgets and Ubisoft budgets, not, you know, indie team budgets as well. Um, look at their reputation. And this is, you know, we cover this when we talk about our how to find a publisher, you know, presentation. The Google searches, you know, going through and looking at Reddit, basically calling other companies that they have worked with. We'll get on a little bit more into in the qualification section, but 
reputation needs to be a, a big factor in this. Um, we've already done budget and cultural fit. Uh, that can come, that, that's multiple things. You know, that fits, you know, how well that they integrate into your Slack or your Discord or whatever you're using for, you know, communication between all these different teams. Uh, but also, you know, are they on the other side of the world? You know, how does the time difference factor into anything? I know some companies that prefer to work with companies, you know, across the other side of the world because they can give feedback and then the work gets done while, you know, the, the client is asleep or at home eating dinner. And then when they come in the next morning, they have a lot of stuff to look at. And I know companies that prefer to have people on the same or near to the same time zone that they are so they can do live feedback and live chat all day long and then strategic fit and this is less of something that goes along with you know outside contractors and more opportunities when sometimes you're looking for work you know a project that pays a little less but is with a higher profile company you know is a big help and a lot of the contractors out there as well, third-party studios and, and audio teams and, and graphics teams, you know, they'll promote what they're doing as well if it's okay with you. And sometimes just simply having that partner involved is a big boost. You know, if you're working with a composer and your options are narrowed down to, you know, three different people or three different companies, and one of them is an award-winning composer, strategically, that's going to be a better fit because then you can brag in your marketing, hey, look, we have award-winning composer so-and-so that, that's working with us. And so that gives you a better strategic fit than you would normally have if it was just somebody in-house or an unknown person. So, you know, those are all things to, to keep in mind as you're narrowing that list down. And so, again, if anybody's got any questions along the way, we can see the chat coming in from LinkedIn and Facebook and everywhere. So just drop a question in the chat and we'll get it answered either, you know, live in between one of my coffee breaks or at the end of the presentation. So you've got your list narrowed down. How do you qualify that partner? And, you know, I, I like to subtitle this, how to properly check your references because it's not simply as easy as saying, hey, send me the last 10 people that you've worked with and let me call them because you have to do a lot more than that. First off, ignore their references. You know, when you are looking for a job and the employer says, we need some references of your past work, you don't send them to the people that you cussed out and stormed because you got in an argument with and left in a huff because that's not going to look real good on you. The same is true for any you know company out there that's doing any sort of work. Basically, you know, if you ask them for references, they're always going to give you the companies and the people that they have the best relationships with. That's just a given. You need to research their past projects and their past per partners on your own. Look at see you know outside of what they just send you in the references. Look and see you know exactly who they've worked with call these folks, pop them on Discord, say, hey, look, we're looking to work with this company. How was your experience? Use LinkedIn to get in there and, you know, find the 
individuals that are involved because that's another big part of doing you know this research is you have to go deeper than just the company you want to find out who the specific people were that worked on that project so you know in the case of finding a publisher one of the things that you want to make sure that you're looking for is okay who was the producer that you worked with you know because a different producer and a publisher can have a night and day difference in quality of you know the work that gets done and, and the feedback loops that you get and all sorts of other stuff you want to find out who those people are and then you know you can look for them on linkedin and see what they've done and, and ask people about you know how they worked with you know those different individuals it's also extremely key that you find out exactly who's going to be working on your project if this is a big company because you know we still have issues you know i've seen it in my 20 some years of doing this where you know you sign up and and here's this contractor who's going to do this great development work for you and, and they show you all these games that they've done and they're gorgeous but what happens is that's their a team of developers and then you sign a contract and you get you know paired up with the b team or the c team and the quality is nowhere near the same thing so you need to make sure you're when you're asking these questions on the qualification side you're asking the right people the right questions and you're finding out exactly who you're going to be working with and researching that level as well and it is a lot of work i mean i know folks are sitting out there going good god this is complicated it is complicated but you're also you know putting in this work to make sure your project doesn't go completely to hell day one so find out what they really did. And we've had folks come to us and say, yeah, I was a designer on blah, 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 AAA game. And we dive into it and look, and it's like, yeah, they were a designer, but they weren't like the designer or even at the top level, they were designing, you know, specific types of levels for specific types of characters. It's like, yeah, they were technically designing a game, but it wasn't, you know, what we thought they were gonna be doing or what they, you know said they were doing so you know find out how they approach specific problems along the way um, you know was it a collaborative thing did they you know sit down and go through the developers you want to understand what their process is uh, you want to understand what tools they use this is what goes back to the whole unity versus unreal you know, do they work in Maya? Do they work in, you know, what have you? You want to understand exactly what they use so it'll fit into your pipeline. Uh, and then, like we said, you know, who's specifically going to be on the team? Who's your primary point of contact? You know, when there's a problem, who do you go to? That sort of stuff. Um, like we said, you know, when you, we, you want to research those individuals, talk to people they've worked with at other companies. But go outside the box too. you know, talk to other vendors who have worked with them, look at review scores, you know, go to the press, you know, if they worked on a project, look up the reviews on that project Were there aspects of that game that they were working on that fit well or didn't fit well into what they were doing. You know, again, if you're looking for an audio, you know, person, they may have worked on a AAA game, but if you go look at a lot of the reviews and a lot of the feedback on that project, if some of the negative feedback comes from the audio or the music or, you know, the environmental sounds, whatever it may be, 
that was a weak point in that project and you've got a good idea of where that weak point is. But you really need to get in and ask hard questions, not just send these general emails out to people that say, hey, how was it? You know, <clears throat> because typically when you do that, they're going to go, oh, yeah, it was fine. You know, you're not going to get a lot of feedback, a lot of details. You've got to make sure that you're going through and asking all the right questions in here. So once you've got your, you know, once you understand exactly what you need done, which is the biggest part of it, and then you've gone and researched these companies and you've narrowed it down to one and you're going to start building a contract, what needs to be in there? Now, the examples that we're going to give now mainly pertain to a developer-publisher relationship, but aspects of this you know, can be used for any sort of partnership agreement, be it a distribution agreement or it's a, you know, community management stuff or art pipeline or, or what have you. So at a bare minimum, <clears throat> your agreement needs to cover the games, obviously. Is it one game? Is it multiple games? outline that aspect of it, you know, does it, you know, include DLC, any post-launch content, that sort of stuff. The platforms that you're going to be publishing on, the languages that you're going to be publishing in, and, you know, this is extremely important because, yeah, I'm old. I've been doing this 20-some years. When I first got started in the industry, digital wasn't a thing. You know, you were we were selling games in boxes on store shelves around the world. And so, Contracts used to be divvied up and, and rights used to be divvied up based on, you know, physical boundaries. There was a contract for France, one for Germany, one for the U.S., one for Japan. Now you see less of that and more of the fact that like contracts are bound by language. So you'll have an English language publisher, a Japanese language publisher, that sort of stuff. So make sure that your languages are called out. And when you're looking at platforms, don't just say PC, say PC covering the following stores, because if your you know, publishing partner doesn't have a good relationship with Epic, for example, there's no sense in giving them the rights to sell it on the Epic store since they don't have that relationship. Make sure you're very, very clear on the platforms and the stores that go along with those as well. Um, price. Obviously, you know, if it's a publishing deal, you want to look at how much money you're getting up front, whether it's a minimum guarantee or if it's a, you know, development milestone based agreement, how much you're getting on the back end, how that money is when you start getting that money on the back end. Are you getting a day one royalty, which is pretty common at this point you know, in the industry? If you're doing live ops, how much is maintenance per month? That sort of stuff. Be crystal clear on this because anything that you're not crystal clear on in a contract is going to get ugly down the line. Uh, sorry, I'm just checking out uh, checking out chat to see if there are any questions. All right, so yeah, stores or territories. Um, we have done deals, especially in the last couple of years, where one publisher will have PC rights to, you know, worldwide in English, but another publisher will have PC rights on the following stores in 
Chinese or or Japanese or Russian, those three those three markets in general tend to have different distribution channels than you see outside of just typical English language anything. Um, and keep in mind too that Steam is not the only distribution platform out there. There's about a dozen good ones that you need to make sure you know you're listed on. Uh, so if it's a then if it's a development deal, who owns the IP? You know, typically if a publisher is paying for 100% of the development, they're going to want to own IP. But if they're not, then you need to be very careful about what you're giving up on the intellectual property side. Uh, then you want to make sure your milestones or payment triggers are delivered. The difference being milestones are going to be the development points that you need to hit along the way and don't make them vague. You know, saying you get $100,000 on beta doesn't do you any good unless you've clearly defined what beta is, uh, you know, what will be included in the game, that sort of stuff. Um, and then net receipts and a revenue share trigger. The That's very important because there's a big difference between getting a 50% royalty on a broadly defined definition of net receipts and a 50% royalty on you know something that's just taking out platform platform fees so and if you're not familiar with what net receipts is it's basically the number that comes down to you know this is what you're getting your revenue share out of and you know gross is going to be exactly what steam's selling it for for example net is going to be bare minimum what Steam is selling it for minus the 30% or 18% or 20% or whatever Steam's taken out of your particular project. Then publishers may want to deduct a bit more for marketing, but understanding what gets taken out of the revenue before you start getting your piece is a very, very, very important part of all of this. Uh, back in the day, Publishers used to be ridiculously predatory on, on what they define net receipts as. Um, it's not nearly as bad these days, but you still want to have a very crystal, crystal clear understanding of you know what's going on. And the revenue share trigger as well are, you know, it's common these days to have two sorts of revenue share, one on day one and another after the publisher, for example, recoups. X amount of dollars. And the same could be true for any sort of contractor that you're using. If you've got an agreement with your composer that you're going to pay them X amount of money up front for the work that they do, but then they're going to get a piece of the revenue share, you need to be really, really clear on when that piece comes in and when that starts to clear. Is it based on a specific amount of money that comes in? Is that money defined by, you know, the overall revenue or a net receipts revenue? Is it based on the number of units sold? You cannot go wrong with any contract that you're structuring in terms of overdefining things because that is going to make your life a whole lot easier. Indie Game Business has one of the longest running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all those speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50, 
go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. Yay! So when you're looking at this and, and tips and pointers for actually negotiating these contracts, understand your client or your partner, understand, you know, what's very important to them, what they're going to be managing, what they're going to be doing, know what is important to them, basically. Uh, define those deliverables, you know, very, very clearly down to as much minutia as you can put into it. And with a long-term development deal, keep in mind as well that sometimes those milestones are going to change. And so you need to have clauses in that contract on how things are going to be accepted, you know, what the process is for submitting and getting, you know, changes done, all of that sort of stuff. So it's not only that you need to define the deliverables, you need to define how they are going to be, you know, triggered and, and, and changed if that need, needs to happen. Uh, don't hand over rights that aren't going to be used. That's an important one and one that developers and indie devs in particular tend to gloss over. Like I said earlier, if you've got a public, if you've got a good relationship with one of the stores, uh, and Epic is the one that generally comes to into play here, but the publisher doesn't, then you know, getting access to Epic. Especially if you, you know, we see developers who already have signed distribution agreements for the Epic Store, but don't have a publisher yet. That is a very valuable thing. If that publisher doesn't have that relationship with Epic, that you know, you shouldn't just give away. You know, that that's a big deal. So you know, keep that in mind. If they're not, ask them point blank. You know, where do you have direct distribution, and where are you going to sublicense? Because anywhere that that publisher is going to sublicense. You know, sublicense meaning handing handing it over to someone else to you know publish in that territory territory. That's you should be getting a higher cut of that because at that point the publisher is basically a middleman. So you know keep that in mind. Ask them dead on. This is where are you going to be publishing this stuff? Where are you not? You know what languages are you going to be using? Which ones are you not going to be using? Don't hand over things that, you know, aren't going to be used because those are, you know, potential points of revenue for you, you know, later on. Um, know your margins. And, and so this goes into understanding what it costs to run your company every month, you know, the amount of money that you need to see to keep going on live ops or, you know, to, to be doing additional content because that's a huge part of any of these games anymore. We don't just like ship a game and the minute it ships, it's like, okay, we're done. You know, you've got to constantly be factoring in how much it's going to cost to not only bug fix stuff, but add stuff, you know, down the line too, because you want to be able to keep that game in the public's eye as long as possible. And by going and doing content updates, that's the best way to do it. But you need to understand and know upfront, you know, how much money do you need to keep that team live after the game has launched. Um, identify the important and unimportant parts of a contract. That is, that's absolutely key. And so when you're going through and you're looking at the draft of, of the contract, with, whether it's for the publisher or, or, or whoever, 
understand the things that are, or identify, I mean, hopefully you're going to understand them, but identify the points in the contract where it's, you know, this is like vital information. This is vital that you have. This is like, eh, whatever. If we get it, that's fine. If we don't, that's fine too. Because from a negotiation standpoint, it gives you fallback points. So if there's six points in a contract that I'm looking at, three of them are important to me and three of them I really don't care about, or they're not really that important. When you go back, you want to present all six points equally, you know, to the partner on the other side of the table and let them respond because then you can give away stuff that isn't as important to you and, you know, get the things that you do need, you know, and, and it's clear, it's very important. And this is where I see a lot of problems in, in contract negotiation. People on one side of the table or the other don't clearly articulate why certain things are important to them. You know, they just look at it and say, oh, well, I have to have this much money you know, day one. Well, why? Other than the fact that you want more money. And a lot of times that's a big issue. You know, one of the very first deals that I structured 20 some years ago, we had a distribution deal in place for all of Europe. And it came down to the developer not wanting to give away the, or the developer wanted the rights to a specific language in a specific store basically. And I can't really, it's, it's hard to explain without going into detail, but I can't really go into detail. And the publisher was just like, absolutely not. We're not going to do this localization and create, you know, this new version of the game in another language and then just hand it to you for another store. But when I sat down with the, you know, both parties and I was like, look, this is the store that they have in mind. It's not going to impact your sales, even 1%. They only want it in there because of a marketing agreement that they have. This is exactly why we need the, the foreign language rights for this particular store. And the publisher was like, oh, okay, now I understand. No big deal. And it wasn't a big deal. But without going in and sitting down and explaining why something is important to you, you're jeopardizing your ability to get that point. And at the same time, you need to understand why other points are coming from the other side of the table are important to that publisher or to that contractor because it puts you in a different frame of mind and you can actually restructure the agreement to say, you know, to have exclusions or, or to bring in certain situations, you know, things like that. It's a key point in making sure that, you know, that agreement is going to be fair for everybody, which is what you want. Um, <laughs> don't be a dick. That's, that's, we can entitle this entire presentation that Twitch might block us if we did it, but that's one of the things people have always, you know, at the end of the day, you're dealing with a person on the other side. And especially in the last year, year and a half, we have seen circumstances arise through the pandemic and through all sorts of other stuff where, you know, people may not be as responsive as possible. And, you know, we've got, you need to be responsive, but if you're not, or if the other party's not, then you need to be able to understand that, you know, and, and within reason. Sometimes if people are just slow to make decisions, they're slow to make decisions. But if they're slow to make decisions because they have a family member in the hospital or because they're having to split their time between the work that they generally do and, you know, educating their child at home because the schools aren't open, keep that in mind, you know.
don't be a dick. That's just basic business right there. Um, and be responsive. Even if you don't, if, if someone asks a question in the process and you're trying to get everything answered and you don't even, you, you don't have the answer for them right now, just let them know that. It's like, yes, I saw your email. I'm not ignoring you. I have to look into this and see what we can do. I'll be able to get back to you at blah, blah, blah date. Because if you have these gaps in responsiveness, that's where people start to lose faith in you. It's like, okay, is this deal really going to happen? Are they ghosting me here? Are they working on somebody else? You know, they're doing another contract and I'm just the backup point at this point. Make sure that you're always being as responsive as possible, you know, throughout the entire process. All right. So, once you've got your agreement signed, that's only like half the battle. Now you've got to manage this partnership. And especially if you're the producer and you've got multiple third parties that you're working with, you know, you've got to be able to stay positive and professional throughout the entire, you know, process. And it's funny because I'm, I'm on a couple of discords for, you know, contractors and production folks. And, and there's like an entire vent channel where you can go in and completely vent and complain about what's going on. And it's a safe space to do it because you need, and we're all human. You need to be able to do it. But when you're managing this stuff from a high level, if, if you're you know the CEO or you're leading the team and you're not the day-to-day -day producer, understand how involved you personally need to be in all of this. Do you need to be in every meeting? Are you, and if you are in every meeting, are you hamstringing the, you know, potential success of your project lead by constantly hovering over them, because that's just basically going to deteriorate their faith in you. And it's going to have repercussions down the line. But so understand exactly how involved you need to be. And this is part of the very first step that we talked about on what your strengths and weaknesses are. Manage expectations at each stage of development. And so this one it, it comes up a lot, you know, obviously in, in typical developer-publisher relationships, but we see it more in relationships with companies outside of the industry, especially in licensing. Uh, I had a client years ago who, you know, we were working on a project for a major celebrity, and but they weren't familiar with the game industry in general. And so their rep completely exploded and blew up at the first concept you know, art drawings of what we had the, the levels laid out to be in the environments. And they were like horrible and this sucks. And I can't believe this is what you're sending over. And, blah, blah. and I was like, when the hell, you know, and we, we talk about it and they were upset because the colors of the buildings and the, and the UI did not reflect the colors of the brand. And I'm like, this is, that is a situation where, you know, the partner did not understand development. No, that first playable is not going to look like a finished game. No, the colors may not be perfect to exactly what you want in the concept art, but that's an easy change. This isn't being able to articulate how your game is being developed, especially when you're dealing with a licensor, is very much going to you know, affect the feedback that you get. Because at that stage, you're not looking for feedback on exactly what the color palette needs to be. I mean, you are to an extent, but that's not the important part. You know, the important part is, you know, are the aesthetics right? You know, is the 
you know, time frame of the game, right? Whatever it may be in that concept art, that's much more important than making sure that you've got the, you know, specific colors that tie into the branding as well. Now, a good publisher is going to, or a good licensor is going to give you, you know, feedback along the way on exactly what colors need to be in there. But this is just one of those scenarios where, hey, you know, there's a lot going on in this stuff and you need to make sure that the partner knows exactly what to expect and when to expect it. Uh, you need to understand how to define the various deliverables in the agreement. This is what we're talking about. You know, you can't just say, hey, it'll be ready at beta. You know, that's not, that doesn't define it. You know, years ago, there were some people that, defined an alpha as a beta and a beta as an alpha, you know, all of this stuff needs to be laid out. When you're looking at your milestones, it's not just like milestone three. It's milestone three that will include the following levels and these weapons will be integrated and whatever else is going to be in there. You need to be 100% crystal clear on all of this. Uh, and then, you know, schedule regular meetings and don't schedule meetings for everybody in the entire process to be, you know, in because a lot of people are it's just going to be a gigantic waste of time. But you do need to have regular meetings at least once a week to go over what's changed. You know, it can be a 15 minute conversation. It can be an hour, but the consistency in there is what you need. And if you have these things set and then you start to delay them, or we don't really have a lot to talk about this week, so let's just skip it. That's a dangerous slope to get on because then you start setting an expectation of, well, we didn't have a lot last week to talk about it, so let's just not meet this week either. And all of a sudden you end up with like three or four weeks when you have no meetings and your partners have no feedback on what's going on or you have no feedback on what your partners are going on. It's imperative from a project management point of view and from a relationship management point of view, that you're having these regular meetings, you know, with the partners and all the stakeholders involved. Then you've got to, you know, and, and this goes along with managing the tactical as well as the strategic. So, you know, the strategic is, yes, we're creating this game and it's going to have all of these milestones and it's going to have all these features in it. The tactical is exactly how, what you're going to be doing along the way to get to that aspect of it. And this is, you know, coming from someone who has executive produced a lot of titles and produced a lot of titles, this is where the trust in your team comes in and showing your team that you have the trust in it. I don't jump in every single meeting, you know, for games that back when I did executive produced titles, I wasn't in every single meeting. You know, I had producers who I trusted to manage that. They were in the meetings. They would give me the feedback I would, you know, pop in once a month generally, you know, just depend, you know, I'm getting feedback from the producer on a weekly basis, but I didn't necessarily need to be in the meeting with the client the entire time. The easiest way to get me annoyed as, you know, a rep for whatever we're doing is when we have clients that, you know, for three or four months, you know, I check in and it's like, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden month, you know, five or six, there's some gigantic explosion and the partner is ready to terminate the contract. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? If you're not involved in some point in identifying, you know, potential problems, then that's going to be a problem down the line. You know, if you are extremely experienced at this or your partner's extremely experienced at this, they've probably seen issues come up, you know, 
over time and other projects that they can identify early on and they may be wanting to step in and say, hey, look, wait a minute. I see this going down a certain route that has caused issues and other projects we've done in the past. Let's step back and get this sorted right now. And it's important not to completely lose your mind and lose your cool. Explain why this is a problem. Explain, you know, where you've seen it come up in the end. And if there are issues that are popping up, whether it's at the contract negotiation stage or, you know, it's it's in the relationship stage and you're in the midst of development, that sort of stuff, look for the real reason and explain why this is an issue. You know, if, you know, going back to that licensing client, you know, that person was extremely upset that the concept art didn't have the right colors in it because, you know, they have to turn around and report to their team. And if the colors weren't right, they just know that was a, you know, a very key point for the, for the brand or for the celebrity or whoever it was. And they need to be able to explain that. So, you know, when that happens from their side, it doesn't need to be, okay, this concept art is horrible. It sucks. I can't believe what you're doing. It's like, look, I like the aesthetic of the game, but just to be clear, our client is extremely picky about making sure that their colors are always, you know, their brand is always properly represented. So we can, we change just the color of something here and there. That's a better way of going about it than just completely losing your mind and getting upset at everybody without explaining why. And that comes down to, you know, that last point, communicate. You cannot over communicate, you know, everything out there. We've got so many tools when it comes to, you know, Slack and Discord and emails and, you know, Microsoft Teams and whatever else that you're out there doing, it's important that you're communicating and you, even if you're at the executive producer level or the CEO level, that you're at least making yourself known along the way because you don't want that client to feel that they're they're being ignored or that contract or whoever it is. You want them to know, even if you don't have specific feedback, that you're there and you're listening and you're paying attention and you are, you know, keeping a pulse on the project. So always make sure you've got very clear lines of communication and know who you're supposed to be communicating with on the other side of the table. You know, if there is a specific person who is handling design, don't be sending design issues to somebody completely different because you actually have the potential of throwing a wrench in, you know, the hierarchy and the, and the structure of that other company. When you do this, make sure you're communicating well and make sure you're communicating with the right people along the way as well. So we're, we're ramping down towards the end here. How are you going to bring this all together and do it in less than 20 hours a day? Because, you know, we all have other things that we'd rather be doing. So, Use a cost-benefit analysis to determine your, your true needs, what you absolutely need. And this was one of the things, even with my consulting firm, that, you know, I had a hard time doing when I got started. You know, as the company grew and it became more apparent that I needed help, I needed to figure out where I needed help. And so part of that is pretty easy. It's like, okay, I don't like doing this part of the, you know, business. So let me find someone who can do it, you know, to the quality that I need it done for the budget that I need to be done. That's one way of looking at that, that cost benefit analysis. 
Another way is to look at the amount of time you're actually spending on something. And it's that's hard to figure out until you actually start tracking data. So we use uh, Toggle. You know, when, when I'm trying to figure this stuff out and I'm working on a new type of client or a new type of project, I need to know, okay, how long is it taking me to go and, and find the right publisher, you know, in our list for a VR game on mobile? You know, all of this sort of stuff. If you use a tool like that to get a good understanding of exactly how much time you're spending on it, what you're going to find is you may be spending a ton of your time doing something that it would be much easier and cheaper to have someone else do for you. And then you can focus on the things that are, you know, more crucial to, to your skill set and to what you need to be focused on. Um Find, you know, your true needs to define your target. You can't, you know, just go out and say, okay, listen, just manage our social media. It's not going to work. You know, you need to be able to say, okay, look, here is our social media. This is what we feel needs to be done. Here are the tasks. Here are the expectations. You have to be able to, you know, define it for everybody or everybody's going to get lost. It's the whole, you know, if no one is in charge, if everyone is in charge, no one's in charge type thing. Um, Use your task list breakdown from your partner, you know, to define the deliverables. And so I'm a big fan, especially when you're running a small company in this industry of no wasted space. So when we're talking to potential clients, the presentation deal points and, and milestones that we use for a proposal are literally the same ones that we put in a contract. That way it's crystal clear all the way through and there's no ambiguity, you know, anywhere along the line. So use that to define the deliverables and then take it a next, next step further and use the deliverables to find the contract terms. You know, that way, again, you've got clear messaging all the way through. You understand what needs to be done. You understand how it needs to be done. And you're working through that, you know, from the initial proposal all the way through to the final contract. Sorry. Coffee. Uh, use your terms, deliverables, and milestones to define the project tasks and goals as well. So once the contract is signed, what we typically do is pull those deliverables out of the contract, put them into our project management system, and we break those down further to help manage the team and tasks and everything needs to be done. Again, you're keeping everything consistent. And if you do that, there are much you stand a much less risk of something falling through the cracks and not getting done because you're tracking it the entire way. And then finally, yeah, you know, check them off, make sure they get done. So that covers the very high level of, of what you need to do. Um, any questions, you know, pop them out in chat and I will answer them. Let me scroll through here real quick, see if there's anything that popped up so far. Uh, all right, cool. Anyway, all right, so lots of links. Um, our consulting firm, it's uh, www.powellgroupconsulting.com. Then we have our Indie Game Business Initiative where we basically set out to teach developers a lot of, a lot about the, the business, the licensing, the marketing, and a bit about the production side of the industry because, quite frankly, there's not a lot of places to, to learn about it. So uh, our Discord is simply discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. There are over 2,500 other 
developers and publishers and marketing teams that are on that site. Very helpful, awesome community. I love my folks. Uh, every week we do a podcast. You can find us on Anchor FM at Indie Game Business, or you can simply look for Indie Game Business. We're on like 11 or 12 different platforms at this point in time. Um, we do our digital conferences. Uh, it's completely 100% free to come and listen to all the lectures and all the lectures are on our YouTube page as well. Uh, and then if you want to do business meetings, we work with Meet to Match and we got very cheap tickets along those lines. Uh, importantly for IWOCon, and again, congratulations. I mean, I really can't say how important it is, how cool it is that, you know, the group from Indie World Order came and, and put this thing together. You know, keep in mind, you know, I saw one Steam review and they're like, well, the latency and blah, blah, blah. I was like, look, nobody's paying them to do this. They're doing this out of the kindness of their heart. You know, we sponsored them because I thought it was a fantastic thing that they're doing. But, you know, just go and it's on Steam. Just look up IWOCon and download it. It's wander through the hall. We have a booth. It's very cool. But more importantly, uh, if you go to powergroupconsulting.com slash IWOCon dash offer, uh, you can get our full complete list of 600 some publishers in the industry. And we've got exclusive discounts for you, not only to our you know, virtual conferences, but to the Workshop Plus series that we've got going on, which is master classes that you can actually afford. Um, so our master class tickets are only $250. And if for every ticket sold, we actually donate a ticket to, you know, underrepresented developers, developers who couldn't afford one. Otherwise, it's a very, very cool, you know, program. And we've got some excellent talks coming up. I think our, our next one is uh, Heather Chandler, who is going to be doing one on how to launch your game, you know, on multiple platforms. And Heather knows her stuff. She's been doing this longer than I have. And she was the former senior producer on Fortnite. So she's got some really, really good credentials in there. Uh, and then we've got a developer support program as well. If you need help finding a publisher, if you, you know, need help finding more contract work, please reach out. And if you have questions, there's my email address, j at powellgroupconsulting.com. And you can, or hit me on the Discord, either one. I'm very easy to find. But yes, I think that's it for today. Um, you all take care, enjoy, and we'll be talking to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.